Well, good morning, guys. I've missed the last couple of times with you, and I'm glad to be back and glad to see all of you here. You you uh, came back anyway, even though I'm back too, so I appreciate that. I'm excited about our kind of general topic for the whole fall, which is discipleship, and that's what I'd like to focus on um, this morning. And so I want to have you turn with me to Romans chapter 1. And while you turn to Romans 1, I'm going to pray for us for just a moment. Our Father, we come to you now so thankful for the Word of God, which is clear, filled with clarity, leaves no room for doubt. And one certainty we see from the Word of God is that those who know you are to proclaim the message to those who don't. Those who know you are to bring along those who have known you for a short time. The older men are to teach the younger men. The younger men are to set an example of self-control. We are to be the church that disciples and mentors and helps one another, Lord. And so I pray toward that end that this would be our heart's cry. This would be our desire that we might learn from one another. We might teach one another. And if you would be so gracious, you would bring more among us, Lord, who are hungry for the word and hungry to be taught. We pray that this morning is useful, that it's convicting, that it's filled with truth, and it is from you and you alone. We praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So to get started, I want to talk to you about the basic progression from a shepherd's standpoint of what it means to take a church from spiritual weakness to spiritual health. So kind of giving an inside view of a, of a shepherd's heart here. Not talking about anyone who's done anything wrong, just a church that's just weak, that they're spiritually anemic. The church that's weakened spiritually, it's, it's not overflowing with members who are caring for one another spiritually. They're just not able to yet. And in very many cases, this would be the church that is relying maybe on pseudo-Christian traditions, pop Christian fads, popular books, whatever the latest and greatest thing is, in some sort of desperate search for spiritual stability. My experience in the ministry has been that when every church in town is doing a certain program, it's probably a bad program, because you're just going down the road that everybody's following. Well, ultimately, this weakness falls at the feet of the shepherds of the church. That's our responsibility. If a church is spiritually weakened, it is the shepherd's fault. That's just the way it is. Now, there's one exception to that. It may be that the church is weak because they're too cheap to pay for a shepherd. Or they devalue shepherding. Or they want to get the most for their money. That church then should quit calling itself a church. Because they're not doing their job. They're not doing what they ought to do. Even a starving individual can recognize that they need another to feed them. And so a church that says, well, we don't want that, then they're not a church. So what's the solution to a spiritually weakened church? To a church that's just kind of on life support? Well, it's basically two steps. To begin with, at least one faithful shepherd has to begin plowing the ground of the hearts of God's people with the preached Word of God as often as possible, discipling people, getting them hungry for the Word. You don't get people hungry for the Word of God by giving them little bites. You get them hungry by giving them big meals. Deepening them systematically. 
I have the opportunity to talk to a lot of young pastors and, and some who are even just getting started in the ministry. And I always like to tell them that if you think you're going to transform a church by preaching 40 times a year, you're out of your mind. That's not enough. You need more. It's like telling a starving person, I'm happy to feed you once a week until you're all better. That's not enough. The shepherd is to be consumed to the point of almost being overwrought with the amount of effort put into preaching and into discipleship. Then, over time, what you ought to see happening is the second step in the progression toward maturity and strength. That's what we're looking for, is a strong and healthy church. The second step happens that when you see that instead of one shepherd being the sole source of spiritual nourishment, that the members now are beginning to take what they've learned and not only apply it to their own lives and growing sanctification and holiness, but beginning to apply it to one another. To help each other, coming alongside each other, whether in official, organized ways or just out of love and devotion to one another. That's the sign of a healthy church. That it goes from one fountain of knowledge to many, many fountains. And I'll come back to that illustration in a moment. At the beginning stages of a church recovering their spiritual vitality and health, There's one source of spiritual water, one fountain, as I mentioned. That's the preached word. But over time, the members ought to become fountains themselves. And it should happen very naturally, very organically. They're bearing one another's burdens. They're being much more effective in their evangelistic outreach because they have something to say. They know the gospel. They understand sin. They understand mankind. They understand God. They understand Christ. They understand the gospel. They understand the cross. And when the pastor, or even a couple of pastors, are doing all the shepherding, all the instructing in the church, the church is still on life support. It's like a guy with no lungs going for a jog because he's got an oxygen tank running around with him. That's great, but he's not a real jogger. He's just a guy with an oxygen tank. And so the church needs to get off that and use that oxygen tank, so to speak, to be self-feeding. Now, forever and ever, it ought to be that the pulpit of God's churches are a continually flowing river of cool, quenching water. It ought to be that way. It makes you thirsty for more. But as the members of the church are hydrated spiritually, they should begin carrying their own fountains of refreshment and encouragement with them and interacting with each other. That's a sign of health. So my goal this morning is to convince you men that you already possess the tools of discipleship you need. You have it right now. The tools of being a fountain of refreshment to one another, maybe at different levels, but you have these tools. And what I'd like to do is a little bit unusual is I want to just peruse through the book of Romans with you this morning to show you these three discipleship tools. They're not ones I'm asking you to attain. I'm telling you, you've already got them. And I'll prove that to you by the time we're done today. My hope is to encourage you to not think of discipleship as a program. Discipleship is not a program. Any more than your lungs breathing air is a program. It is part of who we are. It is, it is the body of Christ. We're not the individual members of Christ. We're the body of Christ. So that's my hope to convince you of that. 
I want to show you these three tools that you already have, and I hope they'll become just a normal part of your Christian life. The first discipleship tool you already have we'll simply call goodness. You have goodness. The concept of goodness and the main Greek word used to convey goodness in the New Testament, it's a rich idea. I'm not talking about some sort of inherent spiritual goodness as if you had something to offer God for your salvation. I'm not talking about a soteriological goodness. I'm talking about a a sanctification goodness. Goodness in the New Testament speaks of the results of your faith in Christ. It's the outworking of your salvation. It's what happens as a result. Goodness speaks of your high moral character, that you desire godliness. You are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. You want to obey the Lord. Nobody has to keep pounding you. You need to obey Christ. You need to obey Christ. You have that desire. There's evidence of spiritual transformation. Somebody who knew you prior to you knowing Christ could point out, yeah, you're a different guy now. They could see that difference. Goodness is present when a believer is seeking Christ-likeness, seeking humility, self-effacement, seeking others' good instead of your own good, living an eternally valuable life instead of just wasting time doing nonsense. Goodness is present in a believer when we're convicted by sin, when we're ashamed of sin, and we desire to live in holiness. If I could just simply uh, summarize this, goodness is the quality of your life that proves that your salvation is genuine, that it's real, that your heart's been transformed by the gospel. Now, I want to show you this goodness because are we going to see goodness portrayed in Paul's letter to the well-established church in Rome? We are. Let's start in chapter 1, verse 8. And I just want to show you goodness. Chapter 1, verse 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. By the way, we're going to be turning a lot of pages this morning. The the church at Rome has this worldwide reputation and it can only be because they've matured and they've strengthened. That's the only way they're going to have that reputation. And yes, they do have their weaknesses. We'll see that this morning. One of their weaknesses was dealing with the inculcation of Jewish and Gentile Christians to be together in one body. But overall, their reputation has preceded them. And all of you know from experience how reputations are formed. They're formed with actions, not with words. So they have a reputation. But Paul here in writing to this well-established church, he believes that in their goodness they desire to live uprightly, that they of all people would value uh, direct instruction and correction. I find it interesting that the less mature a Christian is, the less they want to grow in the Lord. The less they want to hear the preacher correct them. The more mature uh, of you come up to me and say, you nailed me, I have a bloody nose, my feet are bleeding, and thank you for that. And so Paul assumes that they want to hear direct correction. So he confronts the Jews in the congregation. Many of them were looking down on the Gentile believers as somehow less than them. They had a problem. So chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. In passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Boy, he doesn't pull any punches. He, he, the, the bell goes off, he comes out, and wham! He hits him. Now who is he speaking to here? Verse 17 of chapter 2 tells us that he's speaking to the Jews in this particular case. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. 
In chapter 2, verses 2 through 10, he reminds the Jews to be humbled unto the gospel that the wrath of God comes on all who are not true believers, whether you're Jewish or not, doesn't make any difference. And he reminds them that they're not individually, spiritually special. They're not unique cases. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. For God shows no partiality. In chapter 3, he acknowledges the great advantages that the Jew has. Chapter 3, verse 1, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What does he mean? He means we got our Bible through the Jews. That's a great privilege. That's a great advantage. But then he reminds them that they have an equal spiritual need. Those advantages do nothing toward salvation. Verse 9 of chapter 3. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And in the great gospel declaration of Romans 3, beginning in verse 21, Paul declares that all are saved by grace, not by works of the law. 3.21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So I want you to notice this. Right up front, Paul's discipleship in goodness toward the Romans, it's grounded in the gospel. That's where it all starts. That's a proper understanding of the gospel, that it generates goodness. It does something. It generates humility. It kills arrogance. In fact, Paul uses the spiritual hero of all Jews to demonstrate that apart from the gospel, they have nothing to brag about. They have no goodness outside the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 1, What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That even the great Abraham had nothing to boast about except the fact that God imputed righteousness to him in grace and kindness. That's all he had. Well, then Paul paints this picture of the Christian life that's characterized by goodness, grounded in the gospel. Chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the goodness of the believer should be more and more uh, evident. His life is Godward focused. Verse 2 of chapter 5, Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is a Godwardly centered man which helps with His goodness. And look at this. Now, because of the gospel, because of His salvation, He can properly interpret suffering As a spiritual man. Verse 3 of chapter 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Only the Christian can say that. No other person can say we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that the suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What a beautiful expression of the grace of God and how it's working itself out. Then after that exposition of grace, 
Paul calls the church to respond to grace with even greater obedience rather than flaunting the grace of God. Chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, he says. And then verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He's saying that if you're saved, you're no longer a slave to sin. You can't use that as an excuse. You can't say, I couldn't help it. You can't use it as an excuse. Instead, chapter 6, verse 11, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Verse 12, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Verse 22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. This is goodness. It's goodness being lived out. And in fact, to illustrate the nature of your changed life, of your goodness, as it were, Paul makes a comparison in chapters 7 and 8. In chapter 7, he play acts. He plays the part of a well-meaning believer in God prior to the day of Pentecost. A man who's like the writer of Psalm 119 who loves the law, loves the Lord. He desires to live a changed life. There's just one problem. Chapter 7, verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. What is he saying here? He's saying that the law that I love, it took me captive because all it did was prove that I can't be good. That's what the law did to me. Look at verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Is Paul saying, I am at this moment a slave to sin? He can't be saying that in chapter 6. He just said he's not a slave to sin. He's making a comparison. The pre-Christ believer who loves the law of God and loves God is horrified to find out that the purpose of the law is to prove that he is not good. And it's a frustration. But here's the contrast. Romans 8 Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is like swimming underwater for a minute and coming up for air. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The Spirit of God indwelling the new covenant believer produces what? Goodness. And from chapter 8 on, chapter 8 is like is like the dam bursting on the Spirit of God. Verse 3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. End of verse 5, According to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Verse 6, To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Verse 9, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. In the verse 10, the Spirit is life. 
Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, Jesus from the dead dwells in you. In the verse 11, his spirit who dwells in you. Verse 13, by the spirit you have put to death. Verse 14, led by the spirit of God. Verse 15, you receive the spirit of adoption. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. And of course, more familiar to you, Verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes with us for groanings too deep for words. And He searches heart. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Oh, it's just a breath. In fact, it's through the Spirit that both Jew and Gentile are united as the people of God. Look with me at chapter 9, verse 25. Paul quotes the prophet Hosea to make this point. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. We should be the church of the not my people. That's who it is here. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. If we could go back 3,000 years in history to whatever was on the spot that is now Bakersfield, California, uh, I think it was a swamp uh, back then or something, um, and you, you said to God, God's people are here. He would say, no, they're not. But now they are. God's people are here. How delightful is this? And look at the spiritual wealth of goodness given by the Spirit of God on all who would believe. Chapter 10, verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And here's an irony for you. Paul so loves his Jewish brothers He's so eager for the unsaved Jew to enter into the new covenant in Christ that his spiritual tactic has been to go to the Gentiles. They get saved. They demonstrate lives of true goodness. And what's his tactic? Chapter 11, verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Well now, having proven that both Jews and Gentiles are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, having shown that by the power of the Spirit of God, the true believer can live a holy and a set-apart life in Christ, Now Paul drops endless applications of goodness on the church. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse 3, he shows you show goodness by thinking of others more than yourself. Verses 4 through 8, you show goodness by serving the body of Christ with your particular gifting and doing so with cheerfulness. And in verses 9 through 21, this is the text upon which Grace Bible Church's membership covenant is based. It's just Romans 9 or Romans 12, 9 through 21. And what goodness we find here. Verse 9, genuine love. 
Verse 10, brotherly affection, outdoing each other and showing honor. No, after you. No, after you. No, after you. I insist. Verse 11, being fervent in your spirit and love. Verse 12, patience and prayer. Verse 13, generosity and kindness. Verse 14, blessing those who are angry with you. Verse 15, caring for one another, rejoicing with one another. Verse 16, don't show partiality. Verse 17, never have a vengeful spirit. Verse 18, live in peace with each other. Verse 19, trust God to be the judge, not you. Verse 20, trust the one or treat the one well who treats you poorly. And how does this all end? Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. That's goodness. Chapter 13, 1 through 7, as much as is possible, live lives of goodness in your nation. In fact, Paul gives the hope and the warning at the same time that the time of the end is coming sooner and sooner. And so how do we respond? You respond with goodness. Chapter 13, verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And in chapter 14, Paul gives detailed instruction about living peacefully within the church. And we could sum up all of chapter 14 in the first couple of verses. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Boy, wouldn't that attitude solve a lot of problems in churches? If you thought Christ might return tomorrow, argument's done, right? Do we stand for the clear mandates of Scripture? Absolutely. Do we waste time arguing over matters of preference and personal wisdom? No. Don't waste time on it. Why? Because we're demonstrating goodness. Because we're owned by God and we're to demonstrate that chapter 14, verses 7 and 8 is true. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And in fact, we're supposed to look out for one another, to be tender, to be kind, to care for each other. Even when there's personal preference, opinion differences. Chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And in verse 3, he gives the example of Christ who didn't come to earth to please himself. Well, Paul draws the main body of the letter to a close by bringing together Jew and Gentile under the banner of Christ verses 8 and 9, God brought the truth of salvation through the Jews so that Gentiles could hear the truth as well and share in grace. And he desires their goodness in his closing prayer in the main section of the whole letter. Chapter 15, verse 13, he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I said this is the first tool of discipleship that you already possess, goodness. Why can I say this with confidence? Well, if you're truly saved, this will be 
Not might be, not hopefully ought to be, but it will be evidenced by your life. It will be evidenced by a transformed heart, which equals transformed actions. And if you're truly saved, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have the capacity, you have the capability, and you have the craving to walk in the Spirit. You yearn to obey. And if you're truly saved, you know the gospel, you know the sacrifice that Christ has made for you, which translates into working at humility, working at deference. I can't believe that the perfect, holy Son of God died a bloody, cruel death to save me. What does that equal? Humility. What does does humility lead to? Goodness. The humble and humiliated Christian acts in goodness. Let me put it this way. You're not living a perfected life. I'm not talking about good perfection. But you are living a life growing in godliness based in your thankfulness for the gospel. So you might ask, well, how is that a tool of discipleship? Your life becomes a tool of discipleship. It's really this simple. A man can say, tell me about your marriage and how the gospel changed it. And whatever you say to him is discipleship. Whatever evidence you give that your salvation has shown a changed life, that is discipleship. Where does the goodness come from, though? Well, it came from the second tool of discipleship that you already have, and that is knowledge. It came from knowledge. Goodness isn't just generated out of some desire. It comes from actual facts. In Romans... Knowledge speaks of understanding, it speaks of perception, it speaks of spiritual comprehension, knowledge of the gospel, knowledge of sound doctrine, a clear love for the word of God as evidenced by their knowledge and their resulting goodness. Let's go back to Romans 1. We're going to go faster this time. What did the Romans know? And I say that they knew these things because later on in Paul in Romans 15, Paul says everything in Romans is are just a set of reminders to them. So we already know they knew these things, which, by the way, means it's good for preachers to repeat things. I love that. So what did the Romans know? So kind of hang on to your hats here, because we're just going to make a quick list of everything they knew. I think I've got 21. Yep, 21. Here's what they knew. They knew the sole initiator of salvation. They knew the sole initiator of salvation. Chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. They knew that it was God's grace that saved them. Grace alone. They knew the purposeful rebellion of sinners. They had a good anthropology. The purposeful rebellion of sinners, chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, because they're victims, didn't know the truth. Is that what it says? It says, no, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. People who are unsaved stay that way on purpose. Be very clear about that. The purposeful rebellion of sinners. The end of verse 20, they're without excuse. What else did they know? They knew the doctrine of regeneration. They knew the doctrine of regeneration. Chapter 2, verse 29. 
But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul, in his efforts to make sure that, that Jewish believers or professing believers even weren't prideful in their identity, he reminds them that saving faith is a changed heart, not just external actions. There's a fourth thing they knew. They knew the total depravity of man. Again, under the uh, heading of anthropology, the total depravity of man. Chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He's making his point fairly clear, I would think. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They knew the imputed righteousness of God. These are lofty concepts. The imputed righteousness of God. Chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was counted to him, imputed to him, reckoned to him, credited to him as righteousness. That salvation is a judicial work of God by which he credits you with the righteousness of Christ. Chapter 5, verse 1 calls this being justified by faith. What else did they know? We're just making a list. Sixth, they knew the sole initiator of salvation. Again. The sole initiator of salvation. Again. Chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. They knew the Christians' unity with Christ. Chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with Him in the death like His, we shall surely be united with Him in the resurrection like His. The Christians' unity with Christ. They knew the law pointed to the cross. They knew that the law pointed them to the cross. Chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The law acts as a mirror, right? And the mirror shows how ugly and horrible in your sin you are, and it points you to the cross. They knew the permanence of salvation. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They knew the sovereignty of God. Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. They knew the, sal- the sole initiator of salvation. Again, again. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. That is God initiating salvation. They knew the certain hope of eternal life. Last verse in chapter 8, verse 39. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. They knew the glory of Israel. Chapter 9, verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Oh, I missed one. They knew about the doctrine of predestination. Chapter 8, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. They knew the sole initiator of salvation. Again, again, again. Chapter 9, verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. They knew the sovereignty of God as the sole initiator of salvation again, 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 again. Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory? What else did they know? They knew the future salvation of Israel. 
Chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. What else do they know? The permanent love of God for Israel. Chapter 11, verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means. Verses 25 through 27, verse 29 show this as well. What else did they know? They knew the fruit of true faith. Chapter 12, verse 9, let love be genuine. That's the fruit of true faith. Chapter 13, verse 14, the very end of chapter 13. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What else do they know? That you're accountable to one another. Verse 2 of chapter 14, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. And so what do we do when we have that sort of disagreement? We remember verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We're accountable. And they know the love of the body of Christ that shows you to be truly saved. Verse 5 of chapter 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That together with you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You think they knew something? Here's what they knew. They knew the sole initiator of salvation. They knew the purposeful rebellion of sinners, the doctrine of regeneration, the total depravity of man, the imputed righteousness of God, the sole initiator of salvation again, the Christian's unity with Christ, the law as pointing to the cross, the permanence of salvation, the sovereignty of God, the predestination of the believer, the sole initiator of salvation again again, the certain hope of eternal life, the glory of Israel, the sole initiator of salvation again again again, the sovereignty of God as the sole initiator of salvation again 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 again, the true Uh, future salvation of Israel, the permanent love of God for Israel, the fruit of true faith, the accountability of the Christian, the love of the body of Christ. Can you see why Paul can have confidence that they know stuff? By the way, just a little side note here, if we were assigning theological labels, what would we call a Roman Christian today by virtue of what Paul taught and what they believed? We would call them Reformed Dispensational Calvinists. They believed in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone, both for the individual saved person and for Israel as a nation and that this salvation is permanent and it's eternal that election means forever now I said that this second tool knowledge is one you already possess I know you do because I just read it to you and you have the book of Romans in your hand because of these first two tools of discipleship goodness and knowledge the last tool all it is is the outworking the result of the first two Goodness, knowledge, the third tool you already have is instruction. Instruction. If knowledge is the cause of the goodness, then goodness and knowledge together should result in instruction. Now remember, this is the progression of a church growing in spiritual health. Discipleship by one or a few, which should lead to discipleship by many across the body of Christ. We're going to go at lightning speed this time. Turn with me back to Romans 1. 
Romans is primarily Paul ministering to, to the Romans. Obviously, it's a letter. It's not a conversation. But there are clues, there are hints that this church was able to give instruction, that they were able to exhort and encourage and bolster one another's faith. And we're just going to hit some mountain peaks here. Chapter 1, verse 11. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Paul wants to come to impart spiritual gifts. Gifts like increased faith and encouragement and more knowledge of the scriptures, more understanding of Christ and the gospel, the gifts of courage and character, all the gifts that a shepherd preaching the word of God gives on a regular basis. But then look what he longs for. Verse 12. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine, that they might encourage one another. Paul believes that when he goes to Rome, it'll be a mutual teaching opportunity, a mutual instruction. And I know this dynamic as a pastor, that the saints exhort and encourage the shepherds just by the lives that you lead, your testimony of faith. Many times in our leadership meetings or staff meetings, we marvel at the faith and the obedience of so many of you. And it's encouraging. It is instructive to us. In chapter 2, Paul will challenge them not to instruct each other hypocritically, but to do so from a consistent life. You notice the assumption they're discipling one another. Chapter 2, verse 21 You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you steal? In other words, disciple one another from a position of non-hypocrisy. Paul ends chapter 3 with a declaration that the law of God can't save, and we know that the Christian isn't bound under the law of Moses, but under the law of Christ, but that the believer is to have a high regard for the word of God. Chapter 3, verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. It's a word that means we stand by it. It's worthy to be learned, it's worthy to be taught, it's worthy to be known, it's worthy to be relished and applied. All of chapter 4 is simply an example of a proper use of the Old Testament applied to the Christian. If I was a betting man, one part of Romans 5 that was repeated in the day-to-day mutual encouragement of, of the saints as they ministered to each other would have had to have been Paul's tremendous encouragement of Romans 5, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Many of the Roman Christians already knew what it was to suffer for the gospel and within a decade of the writing of this letter, many of them would be dying for the gospel. Chapter 6 is a textbook, a primer of encouragement to live holy lives. Chapter 7 and 8, a master class on life before the Spirit and life after the Spirit. Chapter 9, that part of the job of the Gentile believers is to make unbelieving Jews jealous of their faith. What does that mean? The implication is clear. You're living a life worth being a demonstration, worth being an example. And look at the high bar of Christian evangelism that Paul sets. Chapter 10, verse 1, again, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. The implicit teaching here is that this should be your desire as well. That's what he's teaching. Oh, and how about this bombshell at the end of chapter 11? 
a single fact that literally flavors and impacts the entirety of the Christian life. Chapter 11, verse 36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. This is a singular, life-changing fact applying uh, everywhere across life. You can apply that one fact to every single area of life. You can ask this question. Brother, how is your marriage glorifying God? How is your work ethic glorifying God? How is your attitude in your heart glorifying God? How are your finances glorifying God? Fill in the blank. How is it glorifying God? You could have an entire discipleship group called Let's Glorify God. Then in chapter 12, when he lists the spiritual gifts, three of the seven roles of the body of Christ are interactive relational instruction gifts. Prophecy, the proclamation of the Word of God, teaching, the explanation of the Word of God, and exhortation, the application of the Word of God. In chapter 13, Paul models a church mutually encouraging one another. Chapter 13, verse 12, he says, Let us cast off the works of darkness. Verse 13, let us walk properly. The idea is that all of you should be saying, let us. Paul gives this goal goal of building one another up in the faith in chapter 14, verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. It's a word that means to build a spiritual house, to build something up. It's the same word for upbuilding in chapter 15, verse 2. Let us let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, when this says build him up, it doesn't mean to say you're doing great, you're awesome. No, it means how can you do better? And let me encourage you in your faith. Let me strengthen you. You have these three tools of discipleship. You have them already. You have goodness. You have knowledge. You have instruction. Now, I'd like to spend the last 10 minutes or so that we have here giving you four applications of these tools. And I'm going to go quickly. These are easily understood. Four applications of these tools. The first one we'll call the decision of discipleship. The decision of discipleship. There are different ways that discipleship relationships can come about. It can be organized, set up by a third party. Sometimes we do that here. We, we connect one guy with another guy. Euodia and Syntyche in Philippians 4 was an example of organized discipleship that Paul commanded that a peacemaker in the church bring those two together. Or it can be organic discipleship. You're seeking this out on your own. That you're going to make sure you are in a vital, talk about real things relationship with other men. And you know, we say this in our membership class in Grace Connect, that ultimately if you're not close to somebody in the church, you have only yourself to blame. That you make that happen. And what does that mean to be organic? Well, maybe you seek a more mature man. Maybe you seek a less mature man to, to pour into his life. Maybe you seek any man just for mutual edification to, to just go up to a guy and say, look, for the next couple months, I need someone who's walking the walk and running the race to pray for me and to let me pray for you and to share our faith together. By the way, just to be clear, hanging out together a lot is not discipleship. Doing life together is not discipleship. Discipleship is intentional time where you're discussing the eternal things of God and how you're going to make your life count for Christ. Decision of discipleship. There's a second application we'll call the dynamics of discipleship. What are the qualities 
Whether the dynamics of a genuine discipleship relationship will do this in pairs. Trust and vulnerability. Trust and vulnerability. When I'm in a spiritual conversation and it becomes apparent that they want to present themselves as super spiritual or their prayer requests are so surface that I know that they're deflecting, that's a waste of time. And it may indicate the state of somebody's heart. Trust and vulnerability. Another dynamic. Honesty and humility. Honesty and humility. James exhorts us in James 5.16 to confess sins to one another. Never do we present an I've got it all together front. Blows me away that Paul said in Romans 1.12 that he wanted to be encouraged by the Romans' faith. Can you imagine Paul walking through the store and saying, Hey, I want to hear from you guys. Encourage me. We'd all be going, Oh, no. You know, what, what are we going to do? How about this dynamic? Example and friendship. Example and friendship. If you're a discipler, what an opportunity to examine your own life. I, I think it's just as effective for you to be a discipler as it is to be a disciplee. Because suddenly you're going, I've got to look at my own life. How about accountability and encouragement? Accountability and encouragement. Discipleship is asking hard questions and exhorting to more obedience. It means that if you challenge a man to read Romans this week, you ask him about it next time and call him out on any excuses. Well, I didn't have time. Well, that's funny. I had 168 hours this week. How many did you have? Oh, you had 168 also. That's the great thing about men-to-men discipleship. We can kind of take the gloves off a little bit. How about this dynamic? Attitudes and actions. Attitudes and actions. If discipleship doesn't include examining heart attitudes and exhorting toward actionable items, then it's of little or no value. Instead of saying, you should pay more attention to your wife, you say, what heart problem are you having that makes you forget to pay attention to your wife? Examine the heart. Or an actionable item. Sit down with your wife and ask her two ways you can pay more attention to her and then tell me how you did it. Decision, dynamics. How about the direction of discipleship? The direction of discipleship. You might be saying, I don't even know how to disciple anyone. Why are you telling me this? Well, maybe you've never been in a relationship like that. Maybe you're still fairly young in the Lord. Let me give you a 10-week course on discipleship. You ready? Topic 1, humble love. Topic 2, you don't even have to write these down. I'll tell you why in a minute. Topic 2, laziness and service. Topic 3, patience and prayer life. Topic 4, generosity and relationships. Topic 5, dealing with difficult people. Topic 6, genuine empathy and care. Topic 7, checking your pride at the door. Topic 8, dealing with difficult people, part 2. Topic 9, stop being a difficult person. And topic 10, show the grace of God. But where did I get those? Romans chapter 12, verse 9 through 21. You have the tools of discipleship. Turn it into a 10-week time. You know how to disciple someone or how to be discipled. And one more, the duty of discipleship. This isn't optional. This isn't a program. This is the sign of a healthy church. We have a counseling ministry at Grace Bible Church. Mostly it consists of us trying to connect members with other members. But to be clear from church history, the concept of a counseling ministry in the church is largely an invention of the 20th century. 
Much more traditionally, the shepherds in the church did discipleship. They did teaching through the preached word of God, through shepherding visits. You, you didn't set up weekly appointments with church members. What you did was you wrote them a giant theological letter on how they're in sin, how they need to be encouraged, and then you said, go therefore and do likewise. Keep the letter, read it every day. Well, I don't know what to do. Well, you have the letter, read it again. In some cases... Not all, but in some cases, long-term counseling, really all that is is a pastor or a lay counselor essentially having to live sanctification for someone else instead of them working at it. We say this to parents all the time. If you're working harder at your kid's obedience than they are, then you've got it upside down. There's only three reasons for counseling. Sin, grief, and wisdom. Everything falls under those three. Sin, grief, and wisdom. And the church that relies solely on the counseling ministry is either not training the body or not trusting the body. We are to be doing that for one another. You know, it, I've heard this numbers of times and this thrills my soul. It thrills me to hear, Pastor Steve, thanks for meeting with me those few times. It really helped me set my direction in the Word of God. But what really helped me was the guy that you set me up with that I've been meeting with every week for the last three months. That guy has just been a blessing in my life and we pray together and he texts me and I'm just so thankful for that. That's a healthy church. Now I said at the beginning that this is the sign of a healthy church in which discipleship is not just happening from the shepherds downward but happening across the board among the body. And I've maintained that I believe you already have the three necessary tools, that you have goodness, that you have knowledge, that you have instruction. This is exactly what Paul believed about the Roman church. Chapters 1 through 15, Romans is a bit of an enigma. You will be hard-pressed to find a direct confrontation in Romans, and yet by the time you get done with 15 chapters, you kind of feel confronted. It's brilliant leadership. It's tough, hard talk, but it's not, it's not stop doing this and start doing that. It's, it's more theological basis. So he is pretty hard on them in, in certain ways, but he encourages them. So he begins the conclusion to his letter by encouraging them that they are, in fact, a good and a wholesome and a healthy church because they have these three tools. Look with me at chapter 15, verse 14. He encourages them. Chapter 15, verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. They've got it. They have it. And so I would say to you men that discipleship is your duty. It is your priority. It is not a program that you consider. You don't say, I'd like to pray about being involved in discipleship. That's like saying, I'd like to pray about breathing. You're discipling your wives at the very least by setting an example for them. You ought to be discipling your children. You ought to be discipling your grandchildren at whatever level your kids will let you. It's often said that that grandchildren and grandparents have a a common enemy and that's why they love one another and that's the parents. (laughs) You ought to be... I didn't say it. (laughs) Discipleship is not a program. It can be programmatic. It can be organized and it should be organized but it's not a program. It's a duty. It's a priority. It's a sign of health. You don't ever wake up on any day and say, you know, I'm going to pray about whether I want my heart to beat today. 
It just beats. You ought to be in a, in a vital discipleship relationship at one level or another. That makes an effective church. And you know, when the Lord who peruses every church, when the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, is walking to and fro among all of his local churches, and he sees a local body in which the men of the church are in vital spiderweb-like relationships with one another that just go all over the place. What is the Lord of the church going to do? He's going to open the floodgates to bring other men here to be a part of that. Because what do you do with the guy who's hitting a home run? You put him in the lineup. And so that's what we want, right? Let's be obedient with this group here and watch the Lord bring some more guys in the door. And what an incredible tool. Sometimes I'm the funnel. A new guest comes to me and says, you know, I'd like to take advantage of what you have to offer here at the church. And I've got names that are going through my head because I'm going to throw this guy at one, two, or three of you. And I know that you will disciple him. And that is tremendous. And that's way more valuable than just having them sit in the back and listen to sermons for a year without any relationship. Way more valuable. So, have I convinced you it is your duty? Say yes. Have I convinced you you have goodness? Have I convinced you that you have knowledge? Have I convinced you you're able to instruct one another? One more time. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this time. We ask you, God, to make us an effective church for the sake of Christ and his glory. Amen.